we're in our series, The Way of Escape, and this is number six in that series, and as I always seem to feel, you know, this is the most important thing that I've ever preached. Every series seems to be that way. And I guess for the moment in time that the Lord puts it on my heart, it really is, you know, the important thing for me to share, for me to preach, for you to hear. So I want you to receive the message, not as from a man, but from an office of ministry that he's anointed me to stand in and get excited about it, see it as something that is hugely important for the hour and the day that we live in, because I truly believe it is. Way of escape. If we were to turn to our basic text, which I'm, I'm not going to do at the moment, they may put it up there maybe, but basically 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that there hasn't any kind of adversity and really the word temptation doesn't just mean an enticement to sin. It's talking about hard places. The hard places in your life which are going to be regular human experience. You know, the Lord said there's tribulation in this world, meaning because you live in this world, you're going to have trouble, tribulation, difficulty, and hardship. Not a bad confession. That's just the way the world is. But he goes on to say, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. And if you are in him, that means you have overcome the world. But basically, these hard places that come are the enemy's way of bringing you down, undermining your hope and expectation, perhaps bringing confusion because the circumstance seems to be contrary to what the Word said. And so God tells us some important things about these times of adversity. There are three things you need to know. One is that what's happening to you is common to man. We always tend to feel like this is so bad. You know, nobody's ever experienced it like this before. Well, it's common to man. This is the way the enemy works, to undermine your faith in the Word, to generate anything other than the blessing that that Word will bring. And of course, you know, our challenge is not to be more mindful of the circumstance than we are His Word. But it's common. Everybody's going to experience these hard places. If you've ever been taught that Christianity is an opportunity uh, to do life on a little puffy cloud up here above all of the stuff going on. No, won't happen. So what do you do? What do you know? What do you need to know when these hard places come? It's common demand, firstly. Secondly, he says he's not going to let it get worse than you're able to handle. It's not ever going to become more than you can bear. I hear that a lot. I don't know how much more of this I can take. Well, don't be a weenie or uh, maybe that's not a good word to use, but sorry about that. Um, don't, be, don't be a woos. How about that? Don't just be flaking out uh, over the condition your life is in. You know, be, be aware of the fact that you can hang in there. God said he guaranteed it. So, you know, straighten your back up, put your shoulders back, and press on, brother, because he's not going to let it get to be worse than you can handle. 
But the third thing is probably the most important. He says that with every one of these hard places, he makes a way of escape. Now that should be rejoicing ground right there. Every hard place you come to, there is a way of escape. Now sometimes it seems to take longer than others. I mean, it seems like that way, that highway of escape I got to walk is a lot longer than it was the last time. Yeah, sometimes things seem to uh, be dealt with in a positive way more quickly than on other occasions. But there is a way of escape, and if you'll stay on that path, you will move out from under whatever kind of adversity or difficulty it may be, period. So we have spent time during this series talking about the things the Bible says about identifying and staying on the way of escape. Not going to review those except for last Sunday. I'll mention, or the last Sunday I was in the pulpit, Sunday before last. Uh, The subtitle of the message was Dealing with Division. Because division is one of the ways you will stay in hard places in your life. Many, Many of us have to learn to deal with division almost on a daily basis. All of us do, really, because it's all about relationships. God's into people, and life and its return to you in terms of your quality of life is always going to be related to relationships. And, of course, the enemy knows that before he can, you know, use a person as a channel of his blessing into your life, That relationship has to be properly grounded in the Word. If he can divide the relationship, then God has lost a channel of blessing into your life. And of course, you would have been intended to be a channel of blessing into the other person's life. So the enemy has come to divide. We talked about the spirit of division a little bit uh, a couple Sundays ago. Not going to go into all of that again, except to say, this has to be the enemy's only strategy that is corporate or collective. I mean, he's got different strategies, and, uh, you know, bringing pressure to bear against your life. But corporately, whatever corporate effort is being made, whether it's a husband and wife or a whole family or a church or business, if he can divide the people that constitute that people group, Uh, then the house cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Right from the lips of Jesus. And, you know, Satan knows the word probably as well as you do, or better. And so this has to be one of his primary strategies to keep us from coming into the place of agreement that taps in to the power of God and the corporate anointing that shakes buildings and changes nations. If he can just keep people divided, then, you know, uh, what we will do accordingly with our lives will be minimized. And certainly, most of the hard places relate to not dealing properly with the force of division. Because a lot of your hard places come 
through your relationships. You don't have to work for the guy to have to, you know, cultivate a relationship so you get your promotion. I mean, they come through every relationship. Most of your hard places come through what other people say or do or what you think they say or have done. And so if we don't place an emphasis on dealing with division, beginning with the marriage, that's the toughest relationship you'll ever have to handle. Not because both marriage partners aren't quality people, but because you know them better than anyone else and they know you better than anyone else. Not just the good stuff, which are casual relationships, that's all we want them to know. Uh, but your husband, your wife, they know the real you. And they know what your hot buttons are. And people, you know, sometimes you know, have more of a struggle walking in love one day than they do the, do the next. So, you know, you, you have plenty of opportunity to learn in the marriage relationship. And there, as everywhere else, God says it's best if you work it out and hang together. So we talked about the importance of communication, being concerned about helping the other person, about being a resource to the blessing of God in their life. That's called love. Uh, being sure that your communication uh, isn't corrupt by self-concern, uh, offense, anger, resentment. No, don't let your communication be corrupt. Speak the truth, but do it in love. Know that a soft answer turns away somebody's wrath. And you've got to settle down the emotion so communication can occur. So much depends on communication. But just as much depends on your determination to resolve conflict. Conflict, unresolved conflict, always relates in a divided relationship. Conflict resolution becomes a skill that we have to build. But, you know, and I've preached on it many times, not going to do it this morning. But there are things the Word says you can do to resolve conflict. Most interpersonal conflict is rooted in misunderstanding. According to sociological studies, almost 90% of all conflict is rooted in misunderstanding, which can be corrected with a determination to resolve conflict on the part of both parties. And an understanding of the importance of eliminating the conflict and then beginning the dialogue that will enable you to ascertain what the real point of conflict is. Uh, most of the time you will realize the other person really has the same goals you do, their methodology is just different. So you can negotiate methodology without violating a refusal parameter that may be the Word of God. Ah, here I go again. I'm on another rabbit trail. But the point is, if you don't learn to deal with division, which involves loving people, communicating like the Word says we should with people, not giving offense to anybody. James 3.1 says, if we learn to uh, uh, 
to avoid offending anybody in word, meaning communication. And we can bridle, guide, or influence the whole body, the whole group that was involved, whatever it may be. So don't be offensive to people. It isn't cool. It isn't manly. It isn't uh, how you express a dominant personality. You know, it's not cool to give offense to people. Used to think it was. I did. I was an excellent offender. At one point in my life, I've learned to be real soft and sweet and tender. And I'm saying that uh, in the sense that I'm still learning every day uh, that I need to, to focus on those truths. But don't give offense to anybody. And then it says, don't take offense in the word. Can't always do anything about what somebody else does, but you can keep yourself from taking offense. And to the extent you can put offense out of the relationship, either giving it or being offended, then you're halfway home in making that relationship one that God can use. But these are absolute mandates. We, we have to learn to deal with division or you're going to be living under the stress and strain of interpersonal adversity of some sort all of your life. That's not a way to live. You're useless to God in bringing his blessing into someone else's life and you've closed off the channels of blessing into your own. So you have to learn to deal with division. Beginning on the marriage level, that's where you'll learn the most, where you'll be tested the most, but where the rewards are greatest if you pass those tests and you learn uh, to be joined together in agreement. That's when he says you become heirs together, husbands and wives, in the grace of life. But at any rate, enough of a review. Um, I wanted to talk enough about division and how insidious it is, how poisonous it is to your experience of life. And, you know, dealing with it properly puts you on the path to escape adversity of many, many different kinds and sorts. Well, I want to talk about division on a different level today. I want to talk about division in America. Because again, Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And I, you know, I've lived a while now, a um, few more decades than uh, I, I would imagine. I feel great. But I've lived long enough to know that, that uh, America is in a worse place, I believe, than it's ever been. And I mean, Vietnam was my war, and I, you know, I served in it and was on the receiving end of a lot of the discontent that many Americans felt about that war. And of course, that was the, the era when civil rights took center stage and God raised up Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, we saw progress in that arena, civil rights legislation, but it was still a lot of division back then. But you know, I feel a lot worse about the division I see in America today than I did back then. And I'm not real sure 
If there's a natural reason I can verbalize for that, it just feels really icky. And we're approaching a time of election, which says that division in America is always going to be expressed in the political arena. Now, there's only one cure for the division in America, and it's not politics. The one cure for all of the things that ail America right now is an awakening. The one thing is God coming in power, in glory, and they're becoming, first of all, a revival in the church and an awakening in America. That's the only thing that's going to solve all of the issues that we have at hand right now. It's the only thing. And, you know, we as the church are tasked with positioning our nation for that awakening, that revival, that power, and those God solutions that, you know, we all need and want. I mean, the church is to be the agent of God in this nation that brings unity, brings harmony, brings increase and success in every arena of human experience. America doesn't stand a chance without the church. It's the way America was born, by the hand of God, on the principle of God's Word. That's what the Constitution is. 80% of the source material for the Constitution. You don't like to hear this? You think racism is systemic? Meaning that it stems from the founding principle, which is our Constitution and bylaws? I hate to tell you, but that is a misunderstanding. That doesn't deny the seriousness of the racial problem in America right now. But it's not rooted in our Constitution. Most of the people who suggest that that's the case that I've talked to, and I've I've had meetings with lots of groups of people over the last several months about a lot of issues. And, And my heart goes out to, you know, the things that everybody sees, experiences, wants, but we're on a different page in the body of Christ. There are too many different paradigms and viewpoints of about not only what's wrong, but how to fix it. And the only common ground we have, and it's the one thing that will fix it, is the Word of God. So we have to go to the Word of God. And because the Constitution... The Constitution, you know, 80% of the source material is the Word of God. And if you don't believe me, look it up. That's been established by secular studies over decades past. That's why we are a Christian nation. I don't give a hoot that says we're not. We are a Christian nation. Not, Not because we exclude other faiths or make someone else you know, a second-rate citizen if they don't believe like we do. No, but because we've been founded on principle that has come to us from God through His Word. And, uh, you know, some folks would say, yeah, but all of the founding fathers, you know, the signers of our constitutional documents, Bill of Rights, you know, many of them were slave owners. So that means America was founded 
on not just racial prejudice, but a form of captivity that has become abhorred in the world today, which it should be, slavery. But because America was founded at the time and even the signers of our founding documents were slave owners, does not mean America was founded on racial inequity. Was not. Any more than the Bible was. The Bible was written in a day of great oppression. Slavery was the way economies of the world worked. If you didn't have slave labor, you couldn't compete in the global market. Rome was the worst of all. They enslaved everyone they defeated, and they defeated the known world at that point. So it wasn't a a racial thing. It was anybody that they could defeat, they enslaved. And their economy worked that way. And throughout the record of human history, slavery formed a foundation of successful national economies until somewhere in the mid-1600s. And then things began to turn a little bit, uh, but slavery was still dominant. Then, of course, you know, we see in the example of the Word of God, God in the middle of Roman oppression, and He's writing to a lot of new Christians that are slaves, that were slaves when he wrote to them. And he gave them instruction through the Apostle Paul about how to relate to their masters and how to be most successful in that capacity. But the Bible isn't nullified by the fact that God said in that day when it was written is when he said in Christ all men are equal. Jew, Gentile, male, female, bond free. He placed the vision he had for humanity in front of us. And a vision takes a while, sometimes centuries to come to pass. But where there is no vision, the people perish. He gave us the vision for human human equality in the Bible. At a time when slavery was rampant around the globe, he said, all men are created equal. Because slavery existed when he said that, when he gave us that vision, does that make him a a hypocrite or a racist? Are you kidding me? God gave a vision for humanity, and that vision propels humanity toward it. And in Habakkuk 2.2, we're told, hey, don't get... Don't get tired of waiting on the vision. Tarry for it, because surely it will come. Yeah, we see a vision, we want it. We want it now, we want it yesterday, like, you know, the drive-through hamburger. You know, you gotta have it quick. Pretty soon they're gonna come up with a toss of burger and they'll just throw a burger in the window. But you want it now, you want it quickly, But God says, Terry, for it, wait for it. It's worth the wait. It will come. Well, our constitutional framers may have owned slaves themselves, but they shared the vision of a nation for the first time where all of its citizenry could pursue life, liberty, and happiness equally, predicated 
on the truth that all men are created equal. A vision that originated in the Word of God and that our constitutional framers put in place for America. And that vision has moved America forward more slowly than any of us would like. It took a hundred years to have the most costly war in terms of lives that America's ever fought, the Civil War, to get rid of slavery. Big step, but it didn't eliminate racial prejudice. Uh, that was still there. Because mentalities have to be changed from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, have to be taught to see life and reality differently so it doesn't happen overnight. But if you don't get weary, if you tarry, if you wait on it, it will come. Now, this is with just human effort. It will come. Generations will learn to move beyond the idea that they're better than anybody else. Other generations will learn to dispense of the victim mentality. It has to happen on both sides, and each generation will mark another step of progress toward the kind of uh, social justice, which is a term I've come not to like. Even though there's much injustice in America, uh, like the word systemic, I don't like it. It implies some unhealthy things. We certainly have institutional racism going on every day in America. We certainly have, still have, a, a problem with racial prejudice and bias that has to be step by step the best we can eliminated and ironed out, not only in our legislation, but in the mindsets of our populace. No doubt about it, but it's institutional. I don't know if it's the institution of law enforcement, the institution of the public school arena, uh, just the institution of the family. There are problems that produce or perpetuate racial injustice and prejudice that have to be dealt with, and I believe we're dealing with them. But I got good news for everybody. A shortcut is an awakening in America. Then it's not left to the legislators or human initiative to figure out what they can do about it. God can show up and change hearts of men in an eye blink, and things will be different. You know, I haven't even gotten to my first verse yet, uh, but I get started and I can't get stopped. But the truth, the truth for us is, America will remain divided as long as the body of Christ is divided, because we are the agents of God's blessing into this world, and as American Christians into America. We are the agents of his anointing and his power and his ability to bring change. As long as the church is divided, then we're powerless. A house divided against itself can't stand. The only foundation for agreement that we have is the Word of God. Because everybody has different life experiences, 
different kinds of challenges on a daily basis, it's hard for us to identify properly with what another person's going through because they came up differently. They, saw, they see things through a little bit of a different lens. They've experienced life in a way that you haven't, you have in a way they haven't. So how do you get a bunch of individuals in agreement? The Word of God has to be the foundation of not only your belief system. The Bible says faith without works or corresponding action is dead. Meaning that your belief system being invested in the Word hasn't become the Bible's definition of faith until it changes the way you live. It changes your behavior. It isn't a matter of screwing up your willpower and saying, oh, i got to get rid of this sin or that sin. You do. And that's a worthy goal. But when you have grown to a particular place in your faith, in your understanding of an investment of your belief system in the Word, then you'll want to make certain changes, and they will just occur. So for us to get on the same page... For us to come to a place of agreement in the body of Christ, our lives all have to embrace the same principle of God's Word. And that principle is as applicable to the collective community called America as it is to you individually. The Word of God is not going to be adopted by choice, by secular humanistic people. And that's why the church is the agent that God has to use in the earth. And coming up on election, you know, the divisions in America are going to be clearly um, demonstrated in the differences between political candidates. The election is an opportunity for the body of Christ to come together in agreement and lay the tracks for the kind of prayer that will change America. Because if you can't pray in agreement, you know, you're on your own. And on your own is just not enough. The corporate anointing, when companies of believers come together, can shake buildings. The corporate anointing uh, when more than one company of believers, the body of Christ in America comes together, will shake a nation. But it has to be based on what we call one accord. So coming up to election time, we have to visit the matter of putting men and women in office who are aligned and will act on your behalf because they are your elected representative who are going to act in your behalf on the basis of God's Word. If we can't agree on the Word in the body of Christ, America truly is without hope. But I know we can agree. So, you know, we have to look at candidates and weigh who is going to be right for the office in the context 
of what do they believe about the Word of God and how are they going to react to the direction the Word brings. Well, uh, it's a kind of a hard judgment to make. Uh, in today's environment, you know, uh, whether it's the media, whether it's social media, digital technology, or whether it's listening to a candidate speak from the platform uh, somewhere, you can't believe anything you hear. Listen to me. You cannot believe anything you hear. And I've gotten in little arguments, friendly arguments, with others about this, but you can't. Short of using the Word of God, you cannot discern truth that anybody tells you. And particularly in politics. I mean, a politician, this, they must go to school to learn this, but you have to spin the truth so you look good and your opponent looks bad. And many times, outright lies are easy to find. I'm not pointing at any particular candidate right now. I'm, and I'm not making, uh, making it out like one party is always truthful and the other isn't. I'm saying, you don't know what's true. Because you can't believe anything anybody says. And even if somebody said the truth, then we have a biased media that's going to put their own spin on it. So by the time it gets down to you, it's been spun who knows how many times. You can't hear the truth and know that it's the truth. So how do you decide who to vote for? Well, there's one thing that all candidates are accountable to, and that is the platform that they run on. Because the party that endorses a candidate has a platform, an agenda, a policy agenda, a position on the different issues that America is having to deal with. And when a party endorses a candidate, that candidate will receive the visibility and the promotion and the election push that can be given him that he's not going to get anywhere else other than a party endorsement. Not to mention the money that it takes to run a campaign. So the one thing that constrains a politician in terms of what he actually does is the platform that he ran on. If he turns away from the platform, loses the party's endorsement, loses the, the funding necessary to run an election, then he's, he shot himself in the foot. So the best revelation of what to expect from somebody is to look at the party platform that he or she is running on. Seems pretty cut and dry. I'm not going to name names of particular candidates and suggest you should vote for this one or that one. You're smart enough to make that decision yourself. But I am going to talk about the Democratic platform 
and the Republican platform and compare them to the Word of God. And that will tell you where your vote should be going. If one party, you know, lines up with the Word of God on 15 of their planks, but maybe not so much so on two or three, and the other one, you know, uh, lines up with the Word of God on three of their planks and 15 or 20, not so much, that should tell you what candidates to vote for. It is not. It is not about personality. It's not even about character. I hear too many people say, I can't stand him. He's senile. I'm not naming names. I've heard other people say, I can't stand him. He's a confrontational buffoon. That's not how you vote. That's not how you responsibly pursue the will of God for America. You take a look at the one thing the candidates are accountable to, and that is the platform they're running on. Now, this really is bad news for single-issue voters who love one party's position on, say, immigration, some hot-button issue for them. One party, uh, you know, one candidate seems to come across more like you like than the other candidate. And you vote for a person because of their stand on a single issue. And you're liable to put the biggest bozo in office that you could possibly pick. Because it has nothing to do with his predominant impact on American life. That's the platform. And so, you know, and my heart goes out to people that have looked, looked at the matter of politics through, you know, the lens, for instance, of my family, my culture has always voted this way. It's that party or no party. And then they hear somebody like me stand up and say, no, you got to look at it a different way. But you do. You have to look at it through the lens of God's Word. That's the only way we as a church are going to get an agreement. Is the Word of God. So it was my purpose to go through some of the planks in both platforms. I might get through one plank in the time that remains. And I'll get through the rest, or as much as I can at a later point, uh, next Sunday. But basically, um, let's just start out with the biggie. Let's start out with the matter of the right to life. And, and let's just see what God says about it in His Word, and what the two different platforms say about it. And you say, I know that. You don't need to hit me with that again. I heard that last time around, but, well, no buts. We'll, we'll, we'll view these things from what should be the foundation of our life, which is the Word of God. Now, uh, let's take a look at, uh, yeah, Proverbs 6.16. These six things doth the Lord hate. You know, I used to, I used to look at this and say, Oh, well, I've always taught that there is no 
gradation of sin. There's number one sin, number two, number three, number four, number five. Sin is sin. It's disobeying the word of God. But that's not entirely correct because there are seven things that he says are an abomination to him. Now to study this whole passage out, uh, you know, is, is a good sermon. I'm just not going to be able to make that sermon today. Uh, but we'll, we'll, go, we'll take a look at the, next, the first three points that are an abomination to him, that he hates. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Now that last one, yeah, that seems like a biggie. biggie. But a proud look, telling a little lie every now and then, that's an abomination unto God. Well, without getting too caught up in all of the considerations that could be made, pride is really the original sin before Adam did the original sin. I mean, Lucifer was lifted up in pride, and that brought on the rebellion. Actually, the word look, if you look it up in the Hebrew, uh, is spirit. So a proud spirit, one that exalts its own opinion, its own estimation of what needs to be done in a given situation as to be dominant to be superior, even in areas where, you know, you might think, well, I don't really need God's help here. I can, I can figure this out with my magnificent brain. I can figure this out and get it done. Well, it's all a, 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 pref, a preface uh, to rebellion against constituted authority, God's authority. And so, yeah, that's a bottom line abomination unto God. You can be proud of what God does in your life, through your life, in somebody else's life. That's proud of God. You can get excited and celebrate those kinds of things. This kind of proud, a proud spirit, uh, puts you in the number one spot. And it's a dangerous place to be. The second one, a lying tongue looked kind of harmless because I think most people have done a little shading of the truth in times past, better known as a lie. But, you know, oh, just a little white lie. Just, uh, just shaded things a little bit. Surely that's okay. It's really not when you understand that the enemy can't de- defeat you unless he can deceive you. And the beginning of deception in somebody's life that you tell a lie to is the lie that you told. Uh, this is the enemy's strategy. He wants lies to look like not a big deal. They are a big deal. Untruthfulness undermines trust in a relationship, disabling that relationship completely. But beyond that, it perpetrates a deceived view of reality based on the lie you told, uh, then, so then they're not dealing with the full deck and being able to make decisions for themselves. So no said about these two. The one that's the most important for our focus right now is hands that shed innocent blood. Well, in one way, I mean, you could say, like John, John says, if we say we have no sin, we lie. 
you walk around in this earth suit in this world very long, and, uh, you know, then you're not going to be so innocent. Somebody can point their finger at you and say, he deserved that. Now, we know because of the resurrection of Jesus that we've been redeemed from our past mistakes unto our future of godliness and blessing, right? But in, in judging innocent blood, there's nothing more innocent than a child in the womb who has not even had an opportunity to experience a breath in this physical arena. That is the epitome of innocence. And so to me, this speaks very clearly to the abortion process. You can't take a more innocent life than an unborn child. And really, you know, a lot of the people that support platforms that endorse abortion do so for reasons that they think are best served by that particular group. And yet abortion is one of the most racist acts that is performed in America today. Because the vast majority of abortions that are performed are people of color. As a matter of fact, Lynn and I were shocked to see some statistics, and I don't know if I've got this exactly right or not, but if you just take, I mean, there are a lot of different cultures of color in our country, but let's take the black community for a moment. Um, the number of abortions since abortion was legalized rivals the total population of the black culture in America. As many people of that culture as currently populate this nation have been killed through abortion. One of the most racist things that can go down. And you say, well, what do the parties believe about this? Well, it's very plain and simple. The Democratic platform endorses a federally funded full-term, on-demand abortion. Federally funded. Those of us who believe in the right to life are paying with tax dollars if they get their way to fund abortion. On-demand which means basically for any reason. And full, all the way through the full nine months. And, of course, the Republican platform is the right to life platform. The most basic inalienable right that we all have is the right of life, the sanctity of life. And um, like it or not, that's the way, that's the, way the Bible reads. And I want to I want to I want to go to a verse in closing real quickly because I'm running out of time. But um, who are the Vikings playing today? Oh. No hurry. No, we we're gonna finish up 
fairly quickly right here, but Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Familiar passage, you know it. If my people, which are called by my name, that is all of you that are born again, that are in Christ, that are part of the church. That's you. Shall humble themselves. I don't particularly have a problem doing that. You know, I'm, I really don't. I mean, I know what I would be without Christ. And most of you do too. A big zero. And um, so if my people will humble themselves and pray, yeah, I'm into prayer. I believe in that. And seek my face, yeah, the presence of God is a wonderful experience to have on an ongoing basis. And turn from their wicked ways. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's talking to me? You know, and my honest, you know, knee-jerk response, not necessarily thinking response, is that really, I mean, because this is a wicked way. This is an ongoing thing that is wicked. All wicked means is twisted, wrong. But turn from wicked ways. I don't know that I have anything that I would say is a way of life for me that falls in the category of, of, of wicked. I make my share of mistakes. You know, that's the politically correct term for sin. I make my share of mistakes. Uh, we all do. Anybody says he doesn't is a liar. Because we live in a body of flesh with a lot of demands and carnal nature that can misdirect us. But a way of living that is wicked, I really have trouble identifying with that. I don't think that's me. That lets me off the hook. Well, I think we need to expand our understanding. And since we're talking about the election now, what happens when you vote for somebody that is standing on the platform we just talked about of endorsing on-demand, taxpayer-funded, full-term abortion Well, that's their hands tainted with innocent blood, not mine. You are wrong, friend. You have given them a power of attorney to act for you in terms of this nation's policy. You may have voted for them because you like some other issue they came down on, but, uh, uh, and you just kind of disavowed the rest of the platform, doesn't get it. Your vote put them in office. They represent you. Your hands have innocent blood on them. If you vote for someone that will take this nation in that direction. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching good. This is a fact. Turning from our wicked ways to a large degree has to do with the people that we give permission to speak for us. And in, you know, the political arena, that's the folks that you vote for. Because if they're speaking for you, which they are if you voted for them, 
then the Lord is speaking this to you. And he said, if you want your prayer to enable me to come down in glory and heal your land, which is what he says, won't happen if you got some wicked ways that you haven't turned from, and especially as far as politics is concerned. You can't segregate the Word of God from what single issue you may consider most important. You've got to include it all. Who are you giving permission to vote for you? And so if a bunch of the body of Christ is going to the polls and voting for so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so because you like what they say about this and you don't think there ought to be a wall down there or you don't like the immigration policy we've got, you don't like uh, you know, the, the trade deals that President Trump is making or you don't like, it doesn't matter what you like or don't like. What matters is the Word of God. And when you see something that says this is an abomination to the Lord, hands that shed innocent blood, I would hope that brought the fear of God into your life and enabled you to see that that blood is on your hands if you share or if you vote for somebody that stands on that plank. We could actually close the discussion on politics right here. But there are a whole lot more points that I want to go through and be sure uh, that you understand who you're putting in office. You're going to put somebody in there that has destroyed the institution of marriage? God said he made man male and female. And for this cause, a man leaves his father and mother, is joined unto his wife, and they too become one flesh. And then when he says, let no man put what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, it's not just talking about divorce. I mean, his best is to see it through. But divorce is not a sin. We'll probably touch on that a little more next week. He's talking about don't put asunder God's definition of marriage between a male and a female. We'll talk more about that next week, I guess. So who are you going to join yourself with? Hopefully, someone that is more grounded in the principle of God's Word than someone who isn't.